Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Lionel Twain. theatrical, Miss Marble, but I do so love illusion. Please forgive my hat. I'm losing my hair. I thought Twain was an older man, say 72, 73. 76, to be exact, Mr. Diamond. How do I look so young? Quite simple. A complete vegetable diet, 12 hours sleep a night, and lots and lots of makeup. <laughs> Welcome to Goon Pod, the podcast in which we talk about the Goon Show and the Goons themselves. And I'm really excited this week because I've got a, a very, very special guest. I mean, look, all my guests are special, but this one's extra special because um, he's American and they're always more special. Um, hello, John Morris. Wait, hello, Tyler. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for that lovely intro. All Americans love a little puffing up. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Uh, John is John. You, um, I'm just going to sort of read from your uh, resume here. You're a, a writer, cartoonist, erstwhile podcaster, author of such books as The League of Regrettable Superheroes, and and yeah. uh, and, and we'll, we'll touch on that later. But co-host of for me a much missed podcast all about Columbo. Just one more thing. Uh, I'm a huge Columbo fan. I've seen all of them, you know, countless times. Even the '90s ones, even the really dodgy 90s ones uh yeah yeah for for me it was it was one of the highlights of my you know my podcasting listening back in the day but unfortunately uh that's that's no more john you've you've wound it up yeah well you have to blame colombo for that because we ran out of episodes and we're tempted to go we've been tempted to go back and do it all over again but i think the idea of going back and you know redoing some of those dodgy 90 episodes in particular uh on unappealing you had a very sort of uh freewheeling loose style um you obviously talked about you know colombo and talked about the specific episode that you were talking about that week but you'd have guests and very often you'd be going off and all sorts of tangents and, and and bringing in all sorts of sort of weird and wonderful references to old pop culture and tv and films and comic books uh, everything really uh, yeah, I I don't know if uh, if Gen X, if the post baby boom generation in the UK has the same experience, but very much raised by pop culture in this nation. If you were born around 1970, 1980, so uh, yeah, our Gen X come from this uh, this culture where yeah, TV and comics and magazines and politics and current events were all looped together because that was just the environment we were raised in. It was so intensively mm. pop culture. Sure, sure. You know, so far I've had on this show, every every guest I've had has been very 
enthusiastic about the goon show and, and or, you know the goons themselves um, my ambition is one day to have a guest on who absolutely hates the goons oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we've uh, done that yeah exactly you need to watch out for that we did that we, we brought on a guy who hated Columbo, and it was a bit he was doing a bit for the whole episode and we thought we'd bring him back to like not do the bit and he just doubled down and did the bit twice like you say, he was doing a bit, but he was yeah. um, for for what was the best part of an hour and a quarter. He was oh, just was a long one too. Scathing about the worst part is it was one of my favorite episodes. Uh, oh, um, it was one of the um, Cassidy ones. It was Ted Cassidy? Yeah, it was, Ted Cassidy. It was now you see or J- uh, Jack Cassidy. Jack Cassidy. Uh, now you see him where he played a uh, and no spoilers if you haven't seen it. He plays a murderous magician who has a secret. And I, I couldn't wait because I do love Jack Cassidy. I'm uh, outside of Columbo. I'm an enormous Jack Cassidy fan. And it was such a disappointing episode. So be careful when you bring on your, your goon hating guest. <laughs> give him a give him an episode you don't particularly care about, is my advice. Today we are going to be talking about a uh, specific film, a Peter Sellers film. Um, but before we get onto that, I say this every time. Obviously, this podcast is is ostensibly about the goon show, from which loins the the three goons sprang in terms of uh, you know their later careers. Uh, aside from, I guess, the Popeye comics, what what does the word goon mean to you? I was going to ask about that because, uh, as far as I'm aware, it was E.C. Seeger's Thimble Theater that introduced the word goon. Does that does that have a direct connection to the show? Partly, yes. Um, uh, was it Alice the Goon? Was it was the... Alice the Goon on Goon Island. Mm. Um, just for folks who have not read Popeye, um, he or he started off as a guest in a different strip called Thimble Theater, created by the same creator, E.C. Seeger. Uh, he had a an enemy, the Sea Witch, the Sea Hag. Sorry. Mm, mm. And the sea hag was served by goons, which were these big nosed, round headed, long limbed, uh, mute, incredibly strong creatures. And uh, yeah, the one that we hung out with, the one who had any kind of like real role in the series was Alice the Goon, mm. just the mute servant of the sea hag. Um, and Popeye, the strip is is famous for introducing words into the language like jeep is a, a word that didn't mm, exist before that's right. uh yeah the creation of eugene the jeep so i was really i was curious if uh, did did milligan maybe in the army come across popeye or was popeye a thing in the uk did the the fleischer cartoons have any influence on how on let me go back a little bit uh <laughs> you know in mm. the popeye cartoons uh popeye had that really distinctive way of speaking Olive oil had that very distinctive way of speaking. Bluto had a way of speaking and they weren't necessarily very comprehensible. Mm. It was more about, you had one guy going, and another character going, Oh, Oh, and another character going, which, you know, when I, when I started listening to the goon show, it was so hard to make out what everybody was saying, but that's what it's always reminded me of that, of that kind of Max Fleischer prosody. Like, yeah, I know. I know that the goons were really big fans of of cartoons, Looney Tunes, Disney, Popeye, Fleischer, yeah, cartoons. Uh, I think that the word goon 
gained greater currency during the war because it was what British prisoners of war used to nickname the German guards in the oh. camps. They used to call them the goons. And I think I think that came from the Popeye comic strips. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that there's that connection. Well, that must be a goon from Goody Island, I guess. So, so yeah, so with, with regards to the goon show or the individual goon sellers, Milligan, even Seacombe, What's been your exposure, if any, any to them? Uh, let's see. I was trying to, I was trying to picture the Providence, and I remember I've known about the goons since at least high school because I had, uh, I the, the group I hang I hung out with were incredible nerds, mm. and so. But the thing is, I don't think I heard a goon show until about twelve years ago. Okay. Which was definitely not high school. That was some time after. Mm. But prior to that, my exposure to any of them, it's almost exclusively sellers. Yeah. I don't think I even really heard Harry Seacombe's name until I started listening to the actual show. About 12 years ago, I started listening to uh, radio, old 1940s radio shows while I was working. And The Goon Show became part of that loop. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to that, you know what it was, uh, having grown up in the 70s, is that Peter Sellers was kind of an omnipresent figure. Yes. Because he was he was a genius comedian. And this was this was written in stone my entire childhood. So him I know. And then knowing that he was part of a show. Uh, I remember in being in high school on the bus and talking about uh, Phil Collins being in another band before he went solo. And a bunch of kids on the bus going, Phil Collins was in a band? And that's kind of how I felt about the Peter Sellers thing. Yeah. I was discovering that he was in a comedy troupe. I'm like, really? Yeah. But then a lot of the British stuff misses. Like I I have I think to this day I still have not seen, except for uh the movie their movie together. I don't think I've ever seen Dudley Moore and Peter Cook mm. do a bit together. And they're infants. I don't think I've ever seen Martin and Lewis, and they're American for that. Mm. Mm. You know, you just know them as solo act, as solo artists, and you rarely come across their uh, their group work. Well, the thing is that people of my generation, so what do you call it, Generation X? Yeah, uh, that's, yeah, you and I, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, so we we didn't we weren't around for when the Goon Show first went out. But but what I keep hearing from people, from guests, time after time, is that they kind of because often their dad, our dads, listen to it. And our dads, we'd sort of get exposed to it on long car journeys with our dads playing, you know, the cassettes in the car or whatever. Right. Um, but we all knew in this country, in, in, in the UK, um, Sellers, Milligan and Seacombe, I would say Sellers had the edge, but the three of them were more or less equally prominent and well-known. Hmm. In I'm talking in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Right. Uh, Milligan was was kind of a national treasure. Um, he had so many, he had so much sort of product, TV shows, books, poetry, films. He was a perennial chat show ho, a chat show guest. Uh, he he was he was often a champion for lots of co- you know good causes. He was always on the TV. Uh, Seekham was Mr. Light Entertainment, Mr. Sort of Variety in the 60s and 70s. He was a, he was a very good singer as well. Um, he, he was, you know, always on the TV in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s. Uh, and obviously Sellers had his films. Um, and, right. and, and so for, for people in this country, uh, the three of them, 
you know, so so if, if you're born in the 70s and then you start hearing the Goon Show in the 80s because your dad's playing it and you say, oh, who, who are those guys, dad? And dad says, well, that's Peter Sellers and that's Mike Milligan, that's Harry Seacombe. It's like, wow, so they all work together. And it's a bit like hearing Wings in the 70s <laughs> and John Lennon's, I don't know, double fantasy, you know, and Ringo... Some, some Ringo LP and, and, and someone saying, well, they all used to be in a band together. And it's like, wow, can't believe that's it, a, you know? That's a great way of putting it. I was trying to think of the American version. I think it has to be SNL mm. uh, or Saturday Night Live because you say take Adam Sandler, who's had this, you know, actually really Adam Sandler, Will Ferrell, um, Kristen Wiig. Um, I'm missing a bunch, obviously, but these actors who you know from their prominent comedians, prominent serious actors. And then one day you go, yeah, they, they used to be on Saturday Night Live with tiny doll hands. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they, all, they all used to be on the same show together. That is, yeah, that's interesting to, yeah. yeah, we knew, I think Sellers was entirely movie based in the US. Yeah, 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 he was uh, a great link to start talking about you know, the subject for today, which is Excellent. murder by death. Murder uh, by death. Yeah, 1976, uh, Neil Simon scripted, what would you call it? Comedy sp spoof? I, I've, heard, I've seen satire. I've seen it called a burlesque. Mm. One of the reviews, uh, definitely um, madcap comedy. I saw a few references. Vincent Canby called it madcap and a romp, which I think right. is what we usually call those <laughs> things, a romp. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think it's it's a bit of a burlesque. It's it's highly satirical. The characters are very broad. Yeah, and and it's got two of our favorite people in the world. Yes. It's got it's got Peter Sellers and it's got Peter Falk. Sam Diamond of San Francisco. I know who you all are. The lady here in the rented dress is my secretary and mistress, Miss uh, Tess Skeffington. Oh, Sam, don't. Oh, I'm sorry, sweetheart. Miss Skeffington doesn't like it when I'm so brutally honest. But then again, we're all in a brutal business, aren't we, gentlemen? Never considered murder to be business, Mr. Tyler. Is that right, Mr. Wang? Well, maybe not for you, seeing as how you put all your money into vegetables back in the late 30s. Maybe our friends here don't know that you own over 50% of the bean sprouts and the bamboo shoots grown on the Chinese mainland. So you folks can imagine how much chicken char main goes into Mr. Wang's pot each year. Uh, so just to kind of give a, before we sort of start talking about it, I'll just give a kind of a, what do you call it? A, a precy of sure. the plot without giving away any spoilers. Um, I'm not even sure I could spoil it, actually, <laughs> if I tried. Yeah, there's, there's a, the conclusion of this movie makes it impossible to spoil. It's kind of like Clue. Yeah, yeah. Respect. So you've got these, um, the, the five most famous fictional detectives in the world and they are based on uh, actual fictional detectives slightly tweaked right. the these these five fictional detectives are each invited to join uh, the mysterious lionel twain at his mansion for dinner and murder oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> and over the course of the dinner uh, twain who is unaccountably played by truman capote not quite sure why um it's it must have to do with the slight lisp, but because of course his his address is on a private street and it's Tutu Twain. <laughs> yeah. Which is not a great joke, but there it is. It's Tutu Twain. <laughs> yes. So I'm trying to think who else could play it. 
Could you imagine oh. um, Gore Vidal playing it? Oh, wow. How completely <laughs> condescending and un- unbelievable. But yeah, they actually had considered replacing Capote halfway mm. through the film, apparently, because he's he's a little wooden. He is. Yeah. Um, Terrible. But he's surrounded by an amazing cast. Well, he's, he's not in it for long, is he? Face it, no, he's and... not. It, well, <laughs> nobody's in it for long. <laughs> Everybody, but, even if you are, they're not in it for much. Yeah, that's it. Uh, so, so Twain, played by Capote, he informs his guests, his puzzled guests, that uh, someone in that room will be murdered that night uh, in cold blood. Um, <laughs> uh, and whichever of them solves the murder will be a million dollars richer. Uh, and we'll be able to uh, hold claim to the title of, I guess, the world's greatest detective. Yeah. Uh, and then a lot of stuff happens. Um, there's a dead butler, um, or, or is he? <laughs> right. uh, an, uh, an automaton maid who's deaf and mute, and uh, Twain himself, who desperately needs a good tailor to mend the 12 stab holes in his jacket. Uh <laughs> And then the, the guests end up accusing each other of having a motive and being the killer and it culminates and well, it, anyway, we can get to that, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an ensemble piece with some, some fantastic actors and you can't get away from that. Oh, the whole cast is stunning and there's almost, I mean, that, that was the appeal of the film. I'm sure was not just Neil Simon, even though he was on a real hot streak at the time. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's it's an astonishing cast. The, seeing young Maggie Smith, yeah, is yeah. Uh, it's a kind of a takeaway. Now she's looming so large in pop culture now between Harry Potter and uh, Downton Abbey mm. that uh, it's it's interesting to see her playing an unassuming role. So the the plot of the film, if for folks who haven't seen it, is that or not the plot, the pacing of the film is that. It starts very slow and then it kind of spirals and spirals and gets more and more active. And as that happens, the characters act more and more absurd. And Nora Charles is one of the two who doesn't fall for it or one Mm. of the three, I guess, really, because um, uh, the stand in for Charlie Chan's number one son also Mm. manages to stay out of the hassle. And the the blessed Estelle Winwood playing playing a 5000 year old woman. (laughs) As she did in every one of her roles, pretty much. Because um, Estelle Winwood was was it in her contract that she had to play sex-starved five thousand-year-old women because she did the same thing in The Producers to Zero Mostel. Yeah, she did, and she hated that. But um, <laughs> you know, to be honest, I understand that she used to play kind of like flirty, flirty young broads, and uh, so later when she, you know, she's. I can't think of a role she had as an older actress that wasn't a forgetful witch or a horny old lady. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, bless, you find well, your niche and you fill it. You're going to be typecast. I can think of worse things. <laughs> it's not bad. It's fun. It, like the worst thing in the world is getting typecast in a role you, that's no fun to play. But mm. yeah. Mm. Yeah. So we've got, we got, we got Sellers as uh, Sydney Wang. Who is the is the Charlie Chan stand-in? I suppose. Uh, now, do we want to talk about this now, or is it something to talk about later? Well, that's it's an interesting um, question because 
All right, so just to run down the rest of the cast real quick, um, Sidney Wang is your Charlie Chan, you're right, and he's going to be doing a Chinese accent, more or less, and a Chinese expression, and an impression. Yeah. Um, he's not alone. James Coco is going to be, James Coco is going to be doing a Belgian, and um, James Cromwell is going to be French, I think? It's the most questionable accent in the entirety of the film. Well, I'm, I think it did sell as Coach Cromwell on his French accent because it is verging onto Clouseau territory, really. It does. There's there's one moment when is James Cromwell Irish? The reason I ask is because at one point it's the scene when um, they're, when he and Coco are arguing about whether they're sharing the bed or not. Yeah. And he's <laughs> he has to yell something in French and he it just sounds so Irish. He played an Irish man. <laughs> mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, L.A. Confidential, which I think is a fantastic film. Yeah, right. And I'm fairly certain that Cromwell played, who played, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but he played the crooked chief of police. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm pretty, <laughs> sh- pretty sure he had an Irish accent, which was all over the place. Have you a valediction, boyo? I've mm-hmm. just looked it up and he was born in L.A. Oh, there we go. Okay. So (laughs) actors, kids, actors. Um, So yeah, he's not the only one doing an accent. And then there's some very nice impressions being done of the characters. Well, I'm sure we're going to talk about Peter Fox, superb Humphrey Bogart. Oh yeah. uh, Impression a little bit, but everybody's kind of doing an impression. And yeah, Peter Sellers is doing an impression. That's a lot to deal with. Yeah. But again, like me, I'm sure. Because when did you first see this film? Did you see it? Because you, you're a little bit older than me, I think. Not much, but mm. would you have seen it on TV? What, in the eight, early 80s or, or what? Mur- Murder by Death was one of those films, if I'm remembering right, that was a standard on either HBO or Showtime in the 80s. And it was one of those movies they would start playing at 4.35 in the afternoon so that <laughs> yeah. a movie that's important could play at 6.30. Right. Yeah. Uh so I definitely saw it a lot when I was a kid and a lot of the jokes didn't, you know, a lot of the jokes register because I think a Chinese accent is really funny. If you're eight years old mm. or like a fake Chinese accent is funny if you're eight years old. Mm. Um, so it never really clicked, never really clicked with me, but yeah, I definitely saw this when I was a youngin, and I, I still remember walking away with the, wow, he does a Chinese accent in this movie as a reaction yeah because you know? yeah because i saw this first time round in the late 80s <clears throat> off the back of getting into the goon show in the late 80s mm. and i was just i was just uh, uh, voracious in my appetite for goon related co- content so i was just buying up or watching all the films and you know sellers films and and yeah i remember watching this and not particularly not 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 liking the film but not particularly mm. warming towards it but, and I think this is just, you know, um, the, the way things were back then. And I grew up in a, you know, small town, small town sort of mentality. I didn't, mm. I don't think I felt any sort of uh, emotional response towards Seller's character at all. You know, mm. um, obviously it's different now because we've, you know, everyone's, you know, the world has changed and, and rightly so people have understood that, you know, representations like this are, are not on. Mm. But, but back, back when I was a kid, it wasn't really. It didn't really register. Yeah, this is something I was talking about my with my wife. You know, like I, I said earlier, growing up in the 70s and 80s, you hear Peter Sellers is a comedic genius. 
And you don't really get a chance to interrogate that. The way I was telling my wife is when I was seven years old, everybody said Peter Sellers was a genius, but they didn't ask me, you know? <laughs> so at, growing up as an adult, I get to go back and look at genius and interrogate his genius and kind of demystify it. Mm. Because you do grow up thinking genius is this unassailable um, thing that has no characteristics. It's invisible. You just accept that somebody is a genius. And then you get a little more maturity or you get a little more perspective and you can go, okay, he's a genius because of the 78% hard work, maybe the 10% irreducible personal experiences or irreproducible personal experiences, and then maybe 5% of something you can't quite put your finger on. But you can start getting into people's genius and seeing how it manifests. And I honestly think Peter Sellers, part of Peter Sellers' genius was that when he did do an ethnic caricature, he did it at about 20% of what a quote-unquote funny ethnic caricature would be. Mm -hmm. You know, so like take, for instance, um, uh, I was listening to Manning's appearance on, on the show here. Mm. And you guys got talking about the party a little bit. And the party is, it's a Blake Edwards movie, so it's going to be really over the top. That's definitely a burlesque. And it's a, it's a difficult portrayal looking at it in contemporary perspective. But that movie came out in what, 68? Yeah. And Breakfast at Tiffany's came out in 61. Yeah. And Breakfast at Tiffany's has that the most notorious um, <laughs> Mickey Rooney. ethnic portrayal. Mickey Rooney's horrible Japanese portrayal. Yeah. And that's, that's a difference of seven years. And for context, the entire original Star Wars trilogy came out in seven years. Mm. Seven years is not a long time. I think the entire Beatles catalog took seven years. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Yeah. Uh, so the distance between 61 and 68 is not really a lot, culturally speaking. But you see that, you know, hey, what's a funny ethnic portrayal in 1961? It's Mickey Rooney. Then there's a lot of backlash and a lot of conversation. I've you know, part of my my job is to go back and do research in old newspapers and old magazines. And I've had the privilege of reading letters to the editor from 1955, 1950, mm. and seeing that a lot of, you know, the uh, the progressive attitudes that were that seem to have won today were really being fought for hard back then in the letters and things like Mickey Rooney's accent were heavily litigated. So okay. when you compare that to like Mickey Rooney's Japanese accent to Sidney Wayne's Chinese accent mm. or Chinese portrayal. The Mickey Rooney's at a 10, Sidney Wayne's at like a two. Mm. Fair, yeah. And, you know, it's to the audience that found Mickey Rooney funny. My guess is this is still funny to them on the same reasons, but it's a more nuanced portrayal. Does that make sense? Yeah, I read somewhere though. There was was <clears throat> was there some suggestion that Sellers' portrayal was meant to be a satire of a Caucasian actor playing uh, a Chinese I, character? I think so because right after we watched Murder by Death, we watched a couple of old Charlie Chan films mm. to see uh, how we felt about that. And to be honest, it's the Werner Olin Charlie Chan films are baffling because he does nothing to appear Chinese. Okay. I understand they like they tape his eyes and they give him the mustache and he he says things in you know a different um structure. He sent he structures the sentences differently. But he just walks up to people and he just starts talking. 
I guess uh, I'm having a lot of trouble getting to articulation. Let me try this. There was a joke in 30 Rock, the American TV show from the, from a, a few years ago that was um, meant to depict how lazy um, television networks could be about inclusion. And so it was a show set in the 1950s, black and white, and the nod towards progressive values that the, the network quote unquote made at the time was that they had one real black actor and then they just had John Hamm in, in blackface more or less, but his blackface was literally, he just put a little, like a little schmutz on his hand and did like one wipe. And so he looked like a white guy with a little dirt on his forehead, but he was playing black. That, that is, yeah, I think that, I think you're right that that is what he's parroting is just how lazy it is. It doesn't require anything, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Though that is, it is so strange when he shows up suddenly wearing a complete Chinese uh, traditional dress. What is, it? there was a, uh, well, I can't remember, but um, the Black and White Minstrel Show. Oh, yeah. Which was a, a thing in the UK, and that was on until the 80s, wasn't it? Yeah, it, well, no, it finished, I think, about, I want to say 78 it finished, okay. but it's, you know, that's still pretty late. Really, it it is, and you know, you really do see uh, writing about comic books as often as I do, particularly old comic books. You have to deal with those depictions quite often because it's children's entertainment, and for some reason, that's why that's where that stuff ends up. Mm. Um, but uh, I mean, I still you can still find this stuff in comics that were produced in the '90s and the early 2000s. They're just not uh, using the old signifiers mm -hmm. there's a thing where if you look at any arab character in the 90s first off prepare for him to be a terrorist secondly um the the skin color in an attempt to do a slightly more melanin tone they're purple right okay there are dozens of comics from the 1990s early 2000s that have arab individuals in it who are gray purple slate colored uh, to accentuate their like differences from all the white characters, it still pops up. I used to read Karl Barks comics, mm. the famous duck artist, uh, invented Uncle Scrooge, and was right. the, I guess he's considered to be, well, he is considered to be the preeminent duck universe, Disney duck universe mm. comic book artist from the what thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, even. Uh, and I used to read because they were reprinted in the eighties. A lot of those and uh there was a lot of uh, racial representations a lot of um bones through noses and um and rubbing of tummies and uh huge buck teeth yeah it's it, it, the one of the things about um racial bias or ethnic stereotyping is ultimately they leave really ugly documents behind and so you get involved in something that's so thrilling and so fun and so charming, or it really exhibits expertise, like a Karl Barks style duck strip. And then you turn the page and you're like, oh, okay, we got to deal with this now. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, yeah. The, the comic strip I've been researching for a year and a half, of course, is the single most problematic comic strip of all time, which is Gordo, uh, oh, which okay. is set in Mexico, it stars a group of impoverished, illiterate, barefoot bean farmers and Mex you know lazy Mexican thieves. It is in a lot of ways like the worst depiction you've ever seen of Mexicans. And it was created by a Mexican-American artist. 
the reason that the strip reads the way it reads is because this Mexican-American artist was responding to, well, I see that in entertainment, this is how Mexicans are depicted, so that's how I'll do it. Right. And it took him like 15 years to figure out, oh, I don't have to do it like the TV says or the movie says. I can just do real stories. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Anyway, back to this. <laughs> Uh, well, was, we had to have we had to have a long talk about that because it's such a big part of the material. yeah. But yeah, now let's get back to the movie. <laughs> right, James Coco as um, yeah. as as well Poirot, but he's called it's called it's a pretty on the nose. There's Perrier. It, right, James Coco. Not, I wasn't that familiar with him. Was he like? Did he sort of take the roles that Dom DeLuise turned down? This so felt like that, didn't it? Mm. Um, yeah, Coco is. I think his just goes back and forth from comedy to serious roles. I think he's mostly comedic, but yes, it does feel like when a manic fat guy is needed and Dom DeLuise is not available. <laughs> get, get, get Coco on the phone. Get Coco on the phone. I'm trying to think what, uh, what in the world um, Dom DeLuise would have been doing in 1975 to not be available to film this. He was, I think he was probably doing silent movie or something with uh, Mel Brooks. All right, there okay. we go. We've got David Niven and the mm-hmm. formerly mentioned Maggie Smith as a, as a couple, as the Charlestons. Yeah, Nick and, uh, Dora, they, Dick and Dora, sorry. Very clever. Yeah, I'm not familiar. I mean, I'm familiar with the Thin Man stories or films, but I, as I say, familiar with the name, but I've never never watched any films or read any any anything. I would say the first two Thin Man movies are two of the the finest, funniest mystery films, detective films ever made. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's, it, let's see. So it's Myrna Loy, and I'm absolutely blanking. Powell? Was it someone Powell? William Powell? Wouldn't that be right? Yes, yeah. Um, I got distracted because I, I read that um, they had approached Myrna Loy about playing the parody version of her character, Nora Charles. And her response was that she thought it would be absurd to play herself in a Mm. parody. And also that she didn't want to have her ass pinched by David Niven. So (laughs) William Powell, much more of a gentleman, I think is what we can take away from this. Did did, did Niven have a a reputation for such activities? I don't know. He had just released his his autobiography though, when this, uh, when this movie came out. So now I kind of want to hunt it down <laughs> for the, uh, the ass pinching. <laughs> right. <laughs> Chapter five. <laughs> All the asses I've pinched. <laughs> now the thin man is, is great. I would definitely recommend watching at least the first two thin man movies. If, uh, okay. if you're interested, if you're interested out there. Okay. And then we got, we got uh, the former Mrs. Well, I don't know if I think, I think he was dead by this point, the former Mrs. Charles Lawton, uh, Elsa Lanchester. Yes. In the Miss Marple role, or Miss Marbles, as she is in this. Who, out of all the performers there, if they wanted to actually spin one of these characters off to to play that character, I'm 100% behind Elsa Lanchester as, as uh, Miss Marple. Uh, we returned here, opened the door, but the room was empty. Uh, you were all gone. <laughs> oh, the moose had told us not to assume that you had ever left the dining room. So... Uh, we counted to ten and tried it again. <laughs> and here you were. I'm not one to use hyperbole, ladies and gentlemen, but I'll tell you this. For the first time in my life, I had the cuckus 
right out of me. I like her. I really like her. Now, we've got Alec Guinness, who mm. arguably, I think, is the best thing in this movie. It's nice to hear guests again. Thank you. You are? Uh, Benson, Mum. Thank you, Benson. Uh, no, 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 no. Benson, Mum. My name is Benson, Mum. Benson, Mum? Yes, sir. James, sir. Benson, Mum. James, sir? Yes, sir. James, sir, Benson, Mum? Yes, sir. Hard. My father's name, sir. What was your father's name? Howard. Howard Benson, Mum. Your father was Howard Benson, Mum? Leave it be, dear. I've had enough. He plays the blind butler. Or is he? Or is he? Or is is she? Is they? Yeah. That there is a beautiful scene at the end when it just becomes Alec Guinness's movie. Yep. Uh, I don't want to reveal too much, but it is. Oh, and it's it is a wonderful inversion of that trope. And I just realized this in the murder movie, where the detective gathers everybody in the room and spells out the crime, and they flipped it. Because all the detectives call each other to the room, and then somebody who isn't a detective just explains it all mm. to them. And mm. oh, it's really nice. <laughs> I think, yeah, Guinness, from what I read, Guinness was there just to pick up the, the paycheck, really. Right. Uh, and, and it was it was on the set of this movie that he got the script, first got the script for Star Wars, apparently. Right. Uh, yeah, he was he would be rehearsing that in his re- his uh, dressing room, according to IMDB trivia. Oh, okay. Um and he and Sellers had worked only once before, which is quite, un- I would have thought, well, you know, if you think about it, you'd have thought that, that their, their paths would have crossed more often, but he was, Sellers was a huge fan of Guinness and, and, and often in, do impressions of Guinness at the drop of a hat, you know, uh, and they'd worked together in uh, 55. That was the last time they'd been together in uh, the lady killers, um, which was, which was the, uh, the good version of, of the Lady Killers, not the Coen Brothers right. <laughs> remake. You know, just just to defend that really briefly, I thought it was okay. Not great. I thought it was fine. Definitely mm. doesn't hold a candle to the original one. Yeah. Mm. So, but this but is Sal- a whole other conversation. Yeah. <laughs> but no, in the Lady Killers, Sellers was it was it was his first proper. I mean, he was he was you know it was he was a he wasn't in a lead role. But it was again. It was an ensemble piece, and he was one of the uh, the crooks. And it was his first sort of major film. And again, I think he learned a lot on that film, and and I think he learned a lot from Guinness. But yeah, it, it would be another what twenty one years before they would work together again. Yeah, that's quite a gap. Yeah, and Guinness tells of how on the set of Murder by Death, Sellers measured the length of his caravan to check it was longer than anyone else's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hilarious. Um, I, I gather Sellers, as as he so often was wont to do, was not happy with the film. And he was convinced the film was going to be an absolute disaster. And it wasn't. I think yeah. it, it did respectably. He, uh, gosh, you're right. I think I read in the trivia that he had the producers buy back uh, some kind of like uh, replay option or licensing option. Mm, yeah, and and it, did. it it had a pretty it had a pretty decent set of reviews. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. All the reviewers that I think the people who like Neil Simon plays listen to gave it multiple stars, and mm-hmm. that's your that's your Vincent Canby, right? Your Vincent Canby says this Neil Simon play is quite clever. Everybody goes to see it. What is it that made him think it was not going to work? 
because it i he then goes on to the fiendish plot of dr fu manchu mm. a few years later right mm. it, it can be anything it can anything can trigger could trigger sellers uh to yeah. think that it was whatever he was doing was the biggest pile of crap and he was a, and he was the worst actor in the world mm. And everyone hated him, you know. And it could be down to something as 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 little as trivial as somebody wearing a green T-shirt on the set, because really? because he was deeply superstitious. And it could, yeah, it could be someone giving him a funny look. It could be anything, really. I think he probably just wow. he was possibly. I mean, could it, it could be something as simple as he maybe felt a bit intimidated by Peter Falk's performance? Maybe mm. who knows, you know. Um, and Peter Falk, of course, is amazing um he's possibly possibly second only to guinness in terms of performance in this you know what's weird as a kid when i when i did see this on hbo i really thought it was a david niven movie and right. i don't know what it was that made me think he was the star and everyone but watching it again recently yeah this is a guinness film because he he owns his scenes and i think you're right falk and brendan in particular pull up the second um and 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 Falk is playing Sam Diamond, which is Sam Spade, and he's got this kind of this 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 lady friend played by Eileen Brennan, who's who's marvelous, who's obviously clearly deeply in love with Sam Diamond. But Sam Diamond is well, we find out later on he's a bit conflicted, really, isn't he? Oh, he's he's a complicated man. Talking about um, uh, stereotype and portrayal. This is another one that could have gone really south, but I actually really enjoyed uh, Peter Falk's Sam Diamond's justifying why he was in the gay bar for so long. Mm. <laughs> I, I would describe that as one of my favorite Falk scenes. It, it's beca And because largely he didn't lose momentum. He was Sam Diamond and Sam Diamond talks like this and Sam Diamond goes through his lines. And then... Eileen Brennan throw Eileen Brennan's character throws this little um, roadblock in his way, like it was a gay bar, Sam, and he doesn't stop. Mm. <laughs> he's he still goes through determinate. He's still hitting all of his notes. He's he doesn't at any moment look cowed or shy or embarrassed. He just he goes. Oh, it's very funny. Now, if one of you gentlemen would be so kind as to give my lady friend here a glass of cheap white wine, I'm going down the hall to find a can. Talk so much sometimes I forget to go. I've got down here, and I don't remember this, but I've written down in my notes here that he briefly sobs, and then I think he pulls himself together again and carries on. Yeah, there's like a, there's just like a, and then he goes back. <laughs> oh, it's a very good role. I, I, we're we're very curious about um, how he got on with everyone else on this on the set, and I couldn't really find many notes about this, but it doesn't really feel like. Uh, a Peter Falk kind of crew. Okay. You know, it's hard to imagine Peter Falk hanging out with David Niven and Maggie Smith. Oh, you mean because Lanchester. Because you've not got Cassavetes and um, uh, uh, Ben Gazzara. Ben Gazzara yeah. there. Mm. Yeah. And those are, I mean, the his friendships with those two not only crossed several movies, but I mean, really informed what he was doing as a director and an actor. And you, you, I don't know. I look at this crew and I'm like, ooh, I really want Peter Falk to make close friends with one of these people, but I, I don't think he worked with... Well, no, wait, let me take that back. Of course he worked with Eileen Brennan again. And he worked with James Coco again in The Cheap Detective. And that's... Uh, I believe The Cheap Detective is another Neil Simon script. 
Okay. Okay. I've heard of it. I, I've never, as I say, I've never yeah. seen it. Same director as well, Robert Moore. Right. Oh, I remember who um, was supposed to play Truman Capote now. Oh, good one. It was going to be Phil Silvers. Hmm. Right? Hmm. I would have loved to have seen that. And what do we do? We know why he didn't. Uh, well, my guess is just that Truman Capote was a friend, <laughs> right? And there might have, there might have been like a, a freak show quality of Truman Capote plays a role in a movie. Hey, by the way, there's an idea for your next podcast, uh, Bilko. Mm. Uh, we talk about that all the time. Mm. Bilko is, yeah, I think, honestly, if I dropped uh, RJ a, a chat right now and said, let's do a Bilko podcast, I bet he'd say yes. Mm. I found out, by the way, I found out it was only last week because I'm going to embarrass myself here. I was watching with some sure. friends. I was watching an episode of Happy Days. <laughs> um it was later later period happy days it was the one when um, fonzie gets turned into a nerd by a mad scientist uh, Woof, okay. uh and um i only found out last week that um, the character of um, jenny piccolo is phil silver's daughter do you remember do you remember jenny piccolo regular character in happy days yes phil silver's daughter yeah apparently look at well, i tell you this is one of the funnest the f- you you can kind of see it Kathy Silvers, you're right. Yeah. Evelyn Patrick and Phil Silvers. You know, this is why pop culture is fascinating. You <laughs> never know what the connections are going to be. Mm. <laughs> you know, you're given you're given a, a facade. That's what gets shown to you. But behind the scenes, there's all these wonderful connections being made. Oh yeah. Anyway, again, moving on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. So the the plot of this film is obviously there's going to be a murder. And it turns out that it looks like it's the, the host himself who's murdered. It's not really a, a spoiler, that, but, you know, no. it comes in halfway through. The hook of the film, we find this out near the end, is that it's kind of this, uh, I don't know, churlish lack of gratitude about uh, what you do get with mystery stories. And it was, you know, we're tired of all these stories with punch them out endings and characters introduced in the last second and and plots that don't make any sense. But the movie itself is, of course, riddled with that stuff. Mm. And so the the house being a series of death traps and moving walls is part of that because there's no way it could do 90% of the things that house does. Like, literally, you close, you close the doors to the banquet room and you open them up and you're in a whole different house. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's some great lines. I love... Uh, Sydney Wang Sellers has these these kind of humorous, what do you call them, similes, epithets, um, mm-hmm. like uh, <laughs> a conversation, like television set on honeymoon, unnecessary. Yeah, um, missing out the uh, articles and prepositions as well, which uh, really annoys Truman Capote. I thought that was an interesting little exchange there, where uh, and it, Capote's being kind of racist, but. Uh, you know, it's still, it's that, that big argument they would have between the two of them, considering one of the revelations that was to come mm. Mm. about how, how Capote and Twain, or not Capote, uh, Twain and, and Sidney Wang were, were involved with each other. Yes. Yeah. And then you've got Falk, you've got Sam Diamond 
and again, it's it's this is such ripe dialogue. Uh, I've got a. Well, he says at one point, he says, My school is the streets, and looking down a barrel of a pointed revolver is my teacher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I liked, uh, so here's what I have from my notes. Uh, the last time I trusted a dame was Paris in 1940. She said she was going to get a bottle of wine two hours later, the Germans marched in. <laughs> I like that a lot. That's yeah. a great, that's a great gag. So the beginning of the film is they're driving towards Twain's mansion. He's asking Tess, the 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 Eileen Brennan character, you know, he's, he's asking her. She's, I guess, she's kind of his sort of, I don't know, she's his gopher. She does everything for him. Um, yes, yeah, secretary. He's that, secretary yeah, he's asked her to sort of give him give him the lowdown on this Twain character, and she does. And he says he, he asks her how she managed to find out so much about Twain, and she, and she says, I, "I wrote to Twain and asked him." <laughs> I just. <laughs> Never think of it. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, uh, speaking of dialogue, that's one of my, or sorry, speaking of the car sequences early on, one of my favorite jokes in the movie, and it does come quick and it's kind of appreciated, which is when Sidney Wang is halfway through one of his um, metaphors, mm. his, his kid just gets tired of waiting and guns the engine and bolts <laughs> out of there. Yes. So it's like, yeah, the treachery is like mushrooms or something like that. And then yep. <laughs> love it. And he says something like, Salah says, uh, number one son didn't let me finish mushroom joke or something. Right. <laughs> idiot. He just kept calling him an idiot. It's just fascinating that he's still playing the stereotypes, but it, he plays it very mellow. Mm-hmm. There were there were little subtle gags that I really, that I thought were like speaking to the nuance of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, even They're not really Falker sellers, and I'll try to get back to that in a second. But there's just one, one scene where the Nick and Nora Charles characters go into their room and it's covered in dust and webbing, spider webs. And then within a moment, they check it out and it turns out it's flour and spun sugar and it was put there to make the room look all horrible and depressing and to maybe intimidate them. And then about half an hour later, everybody goes to the rooms for the night and the Charles characters go back to their room and the flour and the spider webs are all still there because they're rich. They don't clean. Of course, they're going to go right to bed in their horribly <laughs> just gross disaster of a room. Loved that. Yeah. Um, there was a cut scene I was very sad to hear about, which is Peter Sellers playing a second role. Oh, right. Yeah, he plays. I know it's frustrating. He uh, he played the taxi driver that um, yeah, was it Elsa Lanchester? Use I don't remember who came by taxi. I think it was her, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he just had a little scene where he turned around and he, there's a photo of it on the IMDb page if you need to see it. Oh, right. It's 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 uh, Peter Sellers' chameleon in full mode. He's got some mustache glasses, cabbie hat, scarf. Looks like a whole different person. And I think I can imagine the voice he would have done if he was if he was, <laughs> if he was playing it as a as a, a British character. I can imagine exactly Looks the like voice it. he would be doing. He would be doing this uh, this old sort of Cockney character that he he did on the Goon Show and in, in, in later years. Um, that's interesting. I wish I wish they'd kept that in because there was also a cut scene where they right at the end apparently where they bring in Sherlock Holmes and Watson. Yeah, and apparently it was so funny that the other actors asked that it be removed because they didn't want to be <laughs> upstaged. Right. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. 
I say, old boy, could you possibly... Hello, it's Mr. Sidney Wang. Mr. Wang. Good evening. So, we finally meet. Can be of assistance. Yes, we were looking for the Lionel Twain home. We've been invited to dinner. Lionel Twain? You don't want uh, to get... Uh, number 22, Lona Lane, uh, just past bridge. Oh, ever so much obliged. I don't get it, Pop. Why didn't you tell them it was all a ripoff? Ah, uh, let idiots find out for themselves. Try, please. You know, it's a that it's a burlesque and a satire means. You know that it's it's hard to discuss it as a film because it's really just a collection of of gags and needle mm. drops. Mm. I, I found the conclusion a little. I think I said this earlier was a little um, ungrateful, and it was. It, it was from the perspective of mystery readers who get tired of like, oh, I, you didn't give me enough clues to solve the murder. And um, what was the other one? Oh, you introduced a character late who turned out to be the problem. And that, that bugs me a little because I don't think that's why you read mystery novels. You read them because they're books, you know? You do. And, not, and also I, the, yeah. the, the classic, the, the absolute classic mystery novels, the Agatha Christie's, they and Dashiell Hammett, they didn't do that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was the it was the dime store yeah. trash pulp novels. I think yeah, it was the garbage exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I'm a I'm a huge fan of the Raymond Chandler books, and you're not supposed to sit there trying to figure them out. You're you're following him on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, all I got. All right. So I just wanted to I mean, one thing because obviously. You know, um, we're both massive Columbo fans, and and I certainly am a big Sellers fan. So I wanted to kind of, and obviously the the two of them appear in this film, and share a few scenes together. But I I asked you to um, to do a little bit of homework, to do a little bit of preparation because I I asked you to imagine because in in <clears throat> up until about 1974, Sellers' career, Peter Sellers' career certainly from the, the late 60s up until the mid-70s, his career was on the skids. It was He was making a lot of lousy films. He was, you know, he, he wasn't in a great place professionally. Uh, but I asked you to, to just imagine if he, let's say maybe season two, something like that, season two of Columbo, if he'd been cast as a Columbo killer, mm-hmm. uh, I asked you to imagine, you know, to, to kind of give me a bit of a, an idea as to, you know, what sort of character that would be. So what did you come up with? Well, um, so I wanted to give him the credit that some of the really great performers like McGowan uh, had, which is bring him back for mm. more than one. So I tried to come up with a good trio of murders mm-hmm. for Peter Sellers to do. A rough idea on two of them. I've always really wanted there to be uh, an arachnologist murderer on Columbo, just because I love the idea of a murder happening in a room that's lined with cages full of deadly spiders. <laughs> yes. I don't know why it just is. Yeah. Um, so, and I, I just don't think there's a wrong way for him to play it. Like if he played, uh, you know, kind of a boffin, a, a kind of a nerdy fella, it would work. If he played it like a Steve Irwin crocodile hunter character, it would work. Mm-hmm. I, I think anyway, Sellers approached it would work. Um, I thought, uh, uh, cause uh, Sellers was kind of an athletic fella. Like, I swear yeah, I've seen. Yeah. Well, he, he would often pose 
in athletic poses, if you know what I mean, for photographs. Yeah. Um, but his heart, <laughs> his heart literally wasn't in it. I don't think he wasn't. Yeah, fair point. <laughs> I was, so I was kind of thinking like, could we, you know, could we really play off? You don't have to play off his Britishness is one of the things that's great about Peter Sellers mm. is I, I, seeing Lolita, I mm. could not, I just, I couldn't, uh, what do you call it? I couldn't clock him. I was waiting for the thing that most most British speakers do when they try to do an American accent is they they really lean into the R's. They yes. love those R's. Yes. And I was just waiting for him to do it. He never did it. He never did the the you know the the way we hit V's and F's slightly differently, slightly harder. He never he never fell back. Mm-hmm. He just does a beautiful accent. So you don't have to have him be. British, but I do like to, if he is British, I feel like you should exploit that a little bit if you can. So I do have him as a, a, a football player, soccer player comes over to the US. There right. was in the 1970s, a real effort to, to make soccer like a big, big thing. So I thought we could tie him into that. But here's my best idea. Okay. Uh, do we have him be a real button up, real, uh, real tight kind of, uh, of British fellow, British gentleman? Moves to L.A. because he's running a company. I thought it'd be nice to have him making playing cards. Uh, he outfits Los Angeles or Las Vegas with its entire playing card stock. So, you know, he, he, a lot of money goes through his hands. But since he's dealing with Vegas, he's hooked up with the mob. Uh, he uh, He's trying to get out because uh, he just can't handle the surf, sun, and fun lifestyle of L.A. He finds it really grueling and he, it's kind of a burden. Uh, so he sets up maybe his wife's sister's kid as an accountant, creates a couple f- books, makes it look like the kid is embezzling, kills him, sets it up to look like a mob hit, takes all the money. Uh, and then I thought like the the nice little twist ending could be that when they found out where he was trying to flee the country too, it turns out to be some big tropical paradise with right. all that sun and fun that he hated for the rest of the episode. I think that's <laughs> that's where I'd go. Excellent. Excellent. Um I came up with one idea. If, yeah, if, please. I if, if, if you'll indulge me, okay. So, so we're talking sort of early, early Columbo season two, mm-hmm. and Salas is playing a character called Campbell McAllister. Okay. Oh, you came up with the name and everything. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, not too shabby. <laughs> he's uh, he's living in LA, um, but he's a he's a a once celebrated, but but now virtually forgotten poet. He supplements his income by writing uh, short erotic fiction for men's magazines. Okay, um, fantastic. <clears throat> um, which which he hates, but you know it's, it keeps food on the table. But he's he's very bitter. Um, he's got a very plummy British accent, but it or English accent, but it slips into his natural native Glaswegian when he's angry. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Perfect. Uh, he finds out that his wife has been sleeping with his best friend, and he sure. and he he murders his wife. He frames his best friend quite successfully. Okay. Um, nice, nice. But but the idea, you know, the murder isn't committed out of jealousy. It's so that the publicity surrounding the murder returns him to the public eye. Okay. And then and then oh. with 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 quite indecent haste, he publishes a book uh, in memory of his dead wife. Okay. Um, and and it, you know, rushes that out, and it's a slim volume of poetry called uh, "Why Didn't He Stab Me Instead?" And it, be- it becomes <laughs> it becomes a bestseller. Okay, um, and somehow or other, Columbo gets involved and looks into this case, 
And in the end, Columbo nails him because he proves he can prove that the poems were written prior to her death. Oh, perfect. There we go. That is, that's the exact kind of hook. That's perfect. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that what I love about that plot is the opportunity for Columbo to use the poems against him and get his wife involved. Well, his wife would love his wife. Definitely. Wouldn't she? Oh, yeah. My wife's been reading your poems. So she told me your poetry. She got her through it. She studied it and called it. <clears throat> and yeah, it's going to be perfect. It's like, I noticed you said reek here. What did you mean? Smoke? <laughs> oh, okay. He there'd slowly be, starts putting together. There'd be a scene of Columbo staggering under a ton of books that he's taken out of the library which are books of poetry and he's going to read each oh, yeah. each and every one of them yeah. <laughs> oh my god yeah that's perfect anything that gets columbus something to, i really i think you really nailed it that's a really mm. good one thank you i love that it's not for money oh yeah yeah so john listen thank you so much for for coming on it's been a wonderful conversation it's been all over the place but it's been oh, great um, in terms of you know where where people can find your stuff, I mean, what are you working on at the moment? Uh, I have like forty pitches I'm working on at any given moment. Right. Um, but I will tell you, if folks want to catch up with me, the easiest thing to do is you can find me at calamityjohn.com. You can find me calamityjohn on Twitter. You can mm-hmm. find me calamity John on Instagram. There's no H in John. There's also no H in calamity. There's no H involved whatsoever. <laughs> so don't don't put an H in. Is my advice. Yeah. Um, I just okay. release stuff. And if you're interested in the books, the books are called The League of Regrettable Superheroes. It's two sequels: League of Regrettable Supervillains and the League of Regrettable Sidekicks. Mm. Uh, and these are uh, tongue in cheek hist- uh, tongue in cheek historical catalogs of the weirdest, wildest, the worst, and the just goofiest superheroes and villains in comic book history. Excellent. And if you're a Columbo fan, I think the entire podcast series of oh, Just yeah. One More Thing is still available. You can find that from a link on climatejohn.com or you can just go to jomtpodcast.com and you'll find, yeah, the absolute, the entire catalog. We left it all up. Um, right. Yeah, go check it out. Excellent. Well, John, thank you. Thank you again. The, the great thing about today is we've just been yakking. <laughs> generally uh yeah and uh, and that's what i like to do so uh, so yeah, yeah thank you very much wonderful. yeah thank you tyler thanks again to john see you next time bye <laughs>